Paddock Pass podcast coming at you from magnificent hills in Tuscany. My name is Neil Morrison and I'm going to be bringing you a fantastic show from an action-packed Mugello and Italian Grand Prix. I am joined thankfully today by not just one guest but two. The ever-reliable David Emmett from Motor Matters is here. Hello David. Uh, hello Neil, I wouldn't rely on me if I were you. And I would love to welcome back to the show uh, Mr. Thomas Bojard from uh, Moto Journal, fantastic French journalist, uh, previous attendee on the show. Good morning, Thomas. Morning. I have to say the working conditions are not too bad. Uh, we're surrounded by blue skies and red flowers, so it should be good. Yeah, and aside from Mugello being one of the best racetracks on the venue, it's a fantastic atmosphere. Uh, I have to say that just the entire weekend as a whole, the setting, uh, place where you get to stay, food, everything just com combines together to become, well, one of the most enjoyable weekends. And well, where we're sitting right now isn't so bad. Yeah, I mean, the scenery just is spectacular. There's always a bit of a contest, like which is the best drive to the circuits. But this is um, uh, absolutely a contender for the uh, for the championship, I would say. Yeah, um, we'd have to say that the action on Sunday was uh, pretty much matching what we have around us in terms of scenery and beauty. Uh, three, well, two fantastic races. Moto3 was a real barnstormer, as we expected. MotoGP was just sensational. We've had a lot of fantastic races at Mugello through the years, thinking back to whenever Rossi was dominating uh, the class back in the 2000s, some spectacular memorable races then. Also, in recent years too, thinking of Tavizio's win in 2017, but I think this one might just have topped a lot. We have a fourth winner in six races in 2019, the second first-time winner of the season, and Danilo Petrucci has arrived. He has. He's done it at last. Also, the third different Ducati winner in three different years. Um, there was a lot of... At, at yes, at Mugello, okay, correct. Uh, it was uh, an amazing race, and like uh, I think after qualifying and practice, we were a bit worried because Mark Marcus really looked to have a lot more pace than other people, and he tried to get away at the start, but um, the he couldn't really. The Ducatis were having none of it, and uh, it turned into just a spectacular street brawl, really. Yeah, there was times when we had as many as I think nine riders uh, fighting towards the front of the race, um, but we always got the impression that. It was going to come down to the two Ducatis, the factory Ducatis of Tavizio's or Petrucci, Marquez, of course, and Alex Rins as well. Uh, Tom, what were your impressions of it? I think for a while it, it looked like a Moto3 race, which is the best compliment you could pay to a MotoGP race. Uh, I think the, 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 um, the actual nature of the track brings it because it's a, it's a special track in the way that all all the corners connect together uh just like Assen in in some bits really fast it you, you on paper it's fast chicanes but it's uh it's more than that it's fast turn really really uh technical and uh, great race tracks often brings ra great races it's the same also for Phillip Island but um there's a special thing with with this this track being the pretty much the, the test bench of the Ducatis, so to say, a live test bench. Where Danilo Petrucci said that when he was a, a test rider in, in, in Superbike, when he was racing in Superstock in 2011, he drew more than 1,000 lap of the place. So you can say that uh, Ducatis' uh, Desmosedici DNA comes from this track, and so uh, that's why they're performing well there. Yeah, you could really see Petrucci's experience uh, around the track because 
he was, I mean, the Ducati is not a bike which is supposed to turn, but he was able to hold incredibly tight tight lines uh, around the hairpins, around, you know, uh, turn one, around Corantayo. Yeah, um, Puccini, the last corner Yeah, Puccini, well. the last corner, that's right. He was able to hold, somehow hold uh, almost a Honda line around, around there, tight around the inside and get and still get the get the drive out. It was, uh, um, it was impressive to see. And I, I think... Um, Petrucci found that ju- just that little bit more because of that. Technically, he says something quite interesting. He says, "I know that if I put quite a lot of uh, rear uh, weight on the rear, sorry, then I can run tighter lines, and that I got it through the my super stock and and super bike experience there. He knows the settings that uh, allow him to do this this stuff. Uh, also, is one I think he's the heaviest rider on the grid. So you think uh, like." close to 90 kilos equipped I would say uh, and uh, normally with this type of uh, of weight you, you need the whole track and uh, opposite to that he was running tighter lines which shows the kind of knowledge and the kind of uh, riding skills he has that's also why Dovidioso picked him as, as a potential factory teammate uh, and the amusing detail is that even himself didn't have enough confidence uh, for that role and uh, it showed uh, during the, the press conference, we'll, we'll talk more about this later. Yeah, I think before we go into what Petrucci, what Dovidioso were saying after the race, it was interesting or it's worth noting that um, he was pretty ill through most of the weekend on Friday he said that before FP2 he could barely keep his eyes open he was uh, feeling that bad uh, heavy almost flu-like symptoms felt very weak indeed was even doubting whether he would be able to physically match up to the you know the, the rigors of a 23 lap race around Mugello manhandling that bike around but yet he was uh, he was the man that well ultimately saved the best for the last on the final lap you know what um Donna had this idea, which was a really good idea, to bring them from Borgo Panigale to the track uh, on street bikes, on uh, on um, on Ducati bikes. And that day, on the Wednesday when they did that, the weather was really poor. And I wonder, uh, because looking at their outfit, they had simple leather jackets. Uh, I mean, all these racers are not used to do uh, afternoon on the roads. For them, it's completely uh, alien to, and it might it might have been caught out by the by the weather. It didn't say anything. But it might have been that. I shall let you into a secret, Tom. They didn't ride all the way. Oh. Stunt doubles. <laughs> That's uh, um, uh, they did actually ride because I, I went and asked about it because I uh, the, the other thing is a lot of racers don't actually have uh, roads um, have road licenses. So I went to check. You know, have they got road licenses? Oh yeah, no, they've all got road licenses. But because the weather because the weather was absolutely shocking, um, they didn't ride all the way. They got some. Uh, they got sort of you know riders to actually ride for most of the distance. But they rode about. I think even then they still rode about twenty twenty five kilometers. So they so they did do some riding because. Um, the other thing was they couldn't afford to take a risk uh, on the roads because they're winding tight the fantastic roads to ride a motorcycle on um, but also a place where a small mistake in the wet can be very costly they didn't want them falling off for a uh, during a, a promo shoot hurting themselves not being able to race yeah but if you don't spend the whole afternoon there if you don't have the proper equipment you can get cold uh, v- 
almost instantly. I mean, uh, some racers we used to test ride with were used to, uh, uh, as a Moto Journal reporter, I did 10 years of test riding on the road before I moved into a MotoGP. And uh, they, they look like absolutely not correctly equipped for the thing. And even for if you, if you have to film for half an hour, it's enough to get a bug. And uh, so it may be something entirely different, but maybe uh, Ducati shot himself in, in the foot by uh, organizing this stuff prior to the Grand Prix. Wasn't Dovicioso sick when he won in 2017? He was, yeah. He had a bad uh, bite of food poisoning. I remember he said he could barely sleep on the Saturday night before the race started. So the, the, the secret to winning is, <laughs> is, is, is getting ill. Yes, he, he had to actually sit up warm-up in, in that year, if uh, my memory serves me right. You know how our Italians uh, become superstitious about everything when, when they win? Because I was talking to Fabiano Stalacchini, uh, one of the most brilliant uh, engineers in, uh, in the Ducati camp yesterday, and he said, yeah we have to think about getting our riders sick before we do because uh, they, they have this type of thinking and he was even half serious about that because it works twice in a row. <laughs> yeah, and it wasn't just Petrucci. Marquez, of course, was uh, feeling pretty bad on uh, Friday, Thursday and then Friday, but he seemed to get a little bit better on Saturday and then on race day as well. Um, going to what Petrucci was saying after the race night, uh, the press conference was interesting because Petrucci not only apologised uh, massively uh, from the depths of his heart uh, three times three times uh, to Andrea De Vizioso for putting that move on him and Mark Marquez at the first corner uh, Marquez went in hot uh, De Vizioso was about to cut him tight and Petrucci saw a space underneath both of them and fired up the inside and Basically, Marquez wouldn't relent. Davizioso had to, and that uh, I guess cost Davizioso the shot of winning the race and finishing second as well. Um, yeah, there seemed to be a sense that uh, Petrucci was saying, uh, "Sorry, I just had to go for this one." Uh, Andre he dedicated the win to Davizioso because, of course, Andrea has uh, taken him in. Uh, Petrucci's moved to Forli, where Davizioso lives. They train together, and Davizioso has really sort of taken him in like a, a brother. Uh, Petrucci said so this race was um, was dedicated to to Dovizioso but there was a, a sense of uh, uh, did the right man did the right man win for Ducati yeah I mean it was odd the uh, the, the move I mean Petrucci led on to the main straight and then uh, uh, Marquez and Dovizioso came flying past um, and you know, you know Marquez Braked a little bit wide. That just allowed Dovizioso underneath. But there was still room underneath. And again, running the tight lines, Petrucci could actually get get through underneath. There was just enough space under there. It wasn't it wasn't a dirty move at all. It, was, it wasn't even an excessively aggressive move. It was... It was, I don't know, I suppose, if it's your teammate, if it's um, especially your teammate who's, uh, who's going for the championship, then maybe you would think twice or three times about it if you'd been told uh, if you'd been told to do that but he'd been told that he had to win a race and uh, he saw his opportunity and 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 he seized it and the worst thing was of course that um i suppose you could almost blame dovicioso to an extent because dovicioso sat the uh, 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 sat the bike up to avoid um uh, pushing marquez wide where if it had been marquez marquez would have just pushed dovicioso wide so unfortunately dovicioso finished third and of course we have to bear in mind that Petrucci is essentially riding for uh, that seat next year. Uh, Ducati bosses have said that they'll come to a decision probably after the next race in Barcelona as to who will partner Davizioso in the factory team in 2020. Jack Miller is in contention for that, but Petrucci is essentially thinking, well, I need to get as many good results on the table as possible, maybe even a, a win, as many podiums like he did in France to, uh, to make sure he gets that seat. So hence the, uh, hence the move to the front. Tom? Jack Miller said in Le Mans that he saw the, the two colliding 
potentially at the end of the race, Dovizioso and uh, and Petrucci, because they were at it already. So I mean, Ducati management uh, should have seen that that thing coming. Uh, I think they managed it brilliantly because uh, it should have ended up in the gravel, Argentina style. It was. Uh, all the ingredients were there. Uh, Marc Marquez was on hard tires, so uh, his strategy was to be there and wait until uh, two pounds in the last lap, and the obvious place was turn one. And then we explained it earlier. Uh, Petrucci is able to maintain these tight lines, and Dovizioso is a very, very hard breaker. So if you had all this together, um, there was a perfect recipe for disaster in turn one. Yet they came out of the, the, this this turn one stunned unscathed. And if you look at the sequence of pictures, they, it shows how how Dovi mastered the thing well. Because when you when you're sat up uh, during a race, it's a hurt in the mouth moment, and and you tend to go immediately wide in in order not to lose the front. But the Vizioso kept in mind that Marquez was just in the outside, and it, that he had to. Uh, lift the bike but not too much otherwise he would have run onto Marquez and then eventually tripped over his own bike so it's like high high speed stunts and it takes three of the best riders in the world to do this at that speed without falling off yeah I mean basically that was uh, uh, Schrodinger's job application because um, it was both the best application uh, for the the ride next year and the worst possible application for the ride next year because uh, Petrucci had been told he needed to win a race he won a race uh, but in doing so, he also managed to take a bunch of points off of his uh, off of his teammate and make his teammate, more importantly, make his teammate lose points to uh, to Marquez. But then again, if he doesn't try that pass, then maybe Marquez wins. So it's um, there's no no really good outcomes. But you do wonder because you saw the joy in the in the Ducati garage. But you wonder what happened after everyone had cooled down a bit, after they got, uh, got on the bike, did um, Domeni Carly or did Chibati have a little word in his ear and ask uh, and ask about it? But um, it's, it's difficult. To me, they managed it really well because uh, in the end, uh, now the, the Petrucci situation is sorted and he, he said, now that I've won this race, I'm going to do my utmost to, to get Dovizioso to win this title. And it it arrives soon enough in the season uh, to, for them to have a clear mind and have a strategy in every single other race. So for me, great stuff. Yeah, I mean, better to do it here than, say, Phillip Island, where there's only a couple more races left to uh, actually uh, you know, score the points. And I do believe that uh, Petrucci uh, will be uh, do, doing exactly what he said. I mean, it was so funny yesterday during the press conference when he said, yeah, I dedicate this race win to my teammates who welcome me like a child, uh, like a brother. Everybody laughed because he's a big child, is he? And, uh, but he's... Um, He's almost too too nice to be a factory rider. Uh, d- do you know in the history of the sports uh, a teammate that would excuse himself three times because he's been passing his leaders? That, that there's a say the first opponent you need to beat is your teammate, and it's it's a real thing in in racing. Except if your name is Danilo Petrucci. And also, I mean, uh, after that, directly after that, he said to the speaker, I'm really sorry for Tottenham because they lost. <laughs> he knew that he was rooting for this team in, in, in the European um, uh, Champions League football. I mean, uh, like Nicky Hayden, Petrucci is one of the rare uh, racers PC that care about something else that is uh, belly button. And so uh, he's a lovable character. And there's an, one last thing just to tell you how much this guy is loved in the paddock. He's a member of a, uh, of a team of policemen, uh, an elite corp called Fiamme de Oro, Golden Flame. 
and all the policemen were sat up at the bottom of ranks of uh, like below the podium and they were all crying together because their mates won it's that that's a is is a real biker more than a champion and everybody was uh, really happy for for him that he won mm. that race yeah um i think it was interesting listening to some of the things he said uh, post race He said there were several occasions in his MotoGP career, obviously a very unconventional road it has been for Petrucci to his first race win. Um, very unconventional in that he went via CRT and then Satellite Ducati and then eventually made his way up, climbed the ranks. And he said that um, there were several moments in that time when he felt like quitting. He thought that this is not my world, is what he said. And Davizioso was asked what's the kind of biggest change or what have you noticed in Petrucci's approach from uh, the end of last year when you started working together, training together, sharing the same sports psychologist uh, group of people away from the track. And he said that uh, he always saw that Petrucci's uh, potential was very, very high indeed. But what was lacking was that self-belief, was that trust in his own ability. And um, yeah, I think that shows that possibly to borrow your phrase he is maybe too nice you know he doesn't have that absolute inherent belief like a, a Marquez or a Davizioso that I belong here and this is this is what I should be doing yeah I mean every rider on the grid should believe that they're the best rider in the world and that they could uh, give the right circumstances yeah it's it, exactly it's, it's easy to say but it's much more difficult to say I think it's also uh, goes to show that the Um, by, I mean, the Grand Prix paddock is focused entirely on uh, FIM, CEV, Moto3, and then Moto3, and then Moto2, and then MotoGP, and uh, that's their talent channel, and they are not, they, they are missing out because there are alternative routes to MotoGP. Um, the right rider in the right circumstances can still really perform. I think that's, for me, that's one of the more interesting lessons of this. And to me, I'd like to highlight another aspect of all of this. It's the how Kenny is the Ducati strategy because they thought, okay, Lorenzo versus Dovidioso, it doesn't work. It's not productive because they're fighting one another. Let's try to find two riders with a clear um, mission, uh, as they had written on their on their uh, on their bike. It's having um, like Dovi who spearhead the, the challenge and his lieutenant who's there uh, and and so once the strategy uh, it, it seemed a bit odd up until now now that uh, that Petrucci has proved his value but now they are in, in a really uh, interesting situation to be really having a, um, a teamwork that that shall, uh, shall be efficient and there's no other top rider who, who's got uh, such a backer I mean you look at uh, at Marquez Lorenzo is nowhere Uh, Rossi and Vinales, it's they, they don't really like each other either. So in in the sense of of developing something different in order to win, just like aerodynamics and everything, Ducati is being being very creative, very Italian in that way. Yeah, the trouble is you you do need two specific personalities, and you also need uh, to have two riders who are prepared to acknowledge their role. One going for the title, and the other one working to uh, working in support, if you like, uh, working towards. So two riders working towards winning the championship for one uh, um, uh, for one of them, and that's a very different strategy to normal. Mm, absolutely, uh, worth pointing out that. Uh, I think Petrucci is the first rider to win a MotoGP race having won 
and competed in the European Superstock Championship since Christopher Mullen. I think he won that championship in 2000. And also, this is an unconfirmed stat, but uh, MotoGP statistician Tom Morsellino said or believes that it's the rider with the most GP starts before his first MotoGP Premier Class win. His last win uh, is uh, meant to be in 2011 in the European Superstock Championship, so it's been a while, seven years, uh, seven months and 19 days, if I remember uh, Tom Mosellino's tweet correctly. Yeah, and also it goes to say, uh, speaking of football, I mean, you're a football fan, Neil, you get, you win some games and you lose some games. Throughout a season, you know you're going to win a, number of, a certain number of games. For races, you know, 22 riders line up, only... One of them is going to win, and you repeat that for the entire for an entire season. So it can be years and years and years between uh, between wins. Some people go through their careers without ever winning, and that must be um, it's an entirely different mindset. I mean, it's, it's a bit of a tangent, but it's it's a fascinating way to think that you might go through your entire career and and you know not succeed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Petrucci, fantastic win, and Magello well deserved. I think he had the. Uh, Basically, the whole paddock cheering him on, willing him on uh, to cross the finish line ahead of Mark Marquez. I just want to pick up on Marquez. It was a fantastic weekend, again, from him. Uh, one that tells us that he is going to be exceptionally difficult to beat. I just want to talk a little bit about his qualifying because I think that was his big moment from the weekend. His qualifying strategy in Q2 was just sensational. Basically, took on Ducati at what he thought were their games their strategy I don't know whether that was just uh, something in Marquez's mind yeah it's hard to say whether it was just sort of a paranoia on his uh, on his part or not but uh, saw Michele Piro following him and thought sod it I'll I'll follow you if you're going to try and follow me yeah so Piro was following him through the first part of the session Uh, he thought ah Ciccati you're trying to disrupt my rhythm upset me Uh, I know what I'll do I'll uh bide my time and uh, wait for Davizioso's toe and he managed to find just the right moment to tuck into uh, Davizioso's slipstream because Andrea hadn't uh, coming through Q1 hadn't set a competitive lap time at that point was 12th and Mark saw that in the screens and thought right I know he's going to have to like do his best on this lap he can't be allowed to find behind him and he managed to start the lap with just amount, enough t- um, space behind him or between them sorry uh, to then close on him through the lap and well I think he broke the outright lap, lap record Rossi's previous outright lap record from last year by seven tenths of a second it was yeah yeah uh, yeah exactly I mean the, the the times were just astonishing this year but uh, yeah the, the one thing about Mark Mark is always and especially in qualifying their strategy their the, the, the way that they think about qualifying is so intense and so clever they always find a way to outwit their uh, opponents I mean you know it was Marquez who came up with the uh, uh, I think it's uh, Jerez for the first time that figured out oh yeah hang on wait a minute we don't have to do just one pit stop we can if we time this correctly we can do three runs by swapping bikes so it's it's it, again this is exactly it while you're actually during qualifying thinking about getting finding that little bit of a, a extra advantage because he wasn't that close to the Dovichio so when he started he was close enough to use him as a target to pull him all the way through um, Dovichio says lap time wasn't spectacular I mean he ended up I think 10th um, uh, on that lap but Marquez just completely destroyed um, uh, completely destroyed everyone um, Marquez is uh, is like Rossi 20 years ago according to Gilles Bigot who's, uh, who's been crew chief for um, Alex Crevillier when he won the title in 500 in 99 he's always ahead in 
of the game, you, you look at him in flag-to-flag -flag races, he was the first one, and he's the only one today to have this hop from one bike to another when it was allowed. You could have the, the two bikes parallel. You no longer can do that because now they have they are at an angle for safety reasons for the mechanics. Same for qualifying, same for... He says, each session I have a different type of concentration because the goals are different. Uh, he's prepared to go beyond uh, the limit and test it in every corner, uh, starting from FP1, just in order to know where the limit is and just stay one notch below during the race. That's why he has so many crashes, but so little during races. It was Freddie Spencer who acknowledged that strategy when the f two guys met in, 19, in um, 2013, and he said... Freddie, I was there just uh, in in between the two, and Freddie said to Mark, "You're you're dead right to go for that because this is the way I won my first 500 uh, title." He's really really clever, but also he can be evil. It's always well, well disguised, but two times he, he he stopped, and at the moment where he stopped and looked for Dovidioso's um, slipstream. He also sat uh, close to Fabio Quartararo waiting to get in his toe, just like he did to Maverick Vinales the first time he identified the the menace in, in Australia during the private test. He's ready to get in his opponent's head, and he was doing that. Fabio was so upset, he just waved his arm and said, yeah, go away, leave me alone. Dovidioso is not that type of rider. He's always doing things on his own. He's, 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 not, he's not intriguing. Marc Marquez is, is ready to do that, to win. And that's also what uh, infuriated Rossi uh, in 2015. Uh, it's like, um, Rossi is just exactly the same type of guy. But, I mean, Marquez is, uh, is some sort of even genius at times. And this time it, it showed because he's able to, uh, to change his tactics uh, in a flash when he sees that. It shows that how, how clever it is on top of being really gifted. Yeah, exactly. Do anything to win. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So uh, that brings us to the end of the first part of our show. We'll be back in a moment with part two. Okay, so welcome back to the second part of our show. Uh, we've talked about, uh, well, three of the big hitters, Petrucci, Marquez and Davizioso. Uh, now to look at some people that really lost out badly. FP4, uh, going through the times after that, we saw both Fabio Quattararo and Maverick Vinales posting a succession of fantastic lap times um, that's led Marquez to even say in the press conference afterwards that those guys were the ones with the best pace. Uh, Vinales, surprise, surprise, didn't get the qualifying result that he needed when it mattered most. Uh, but Quattararo starting on the front row uh, looked like there was some real potential there for him to possibly even challenge for the podium. Now we know that these guys were suffering big time on the straight. I think Quadraro was the fastest Yamaha, and he was still losing something like 15 kilometers per hour to Davizioso's Ducati. So it was always going to be a bit of a tall order. However, I don't think any of us quite expected Yamaha to undergo the kind of uh, punishing struggles that they had, because it wasn't just uh, Vinales and Quattararo that uh, failed to perform. Valentino Rossi, I think, had his worst Italian GP ever, certainly in terms of qualifying performance. It was his worst ever showing at Mugello. And... Anonymous, uh, yeah, but anonymous, lots anonymous of mistakes. Yeah, lots of mistakes. Uh, uh, anonymous all weekend. Um, it really started on um, Saturday, Saturday morning. morning. Yeah, exactly. In FP three, running wide and running off uh, while he was on a fast fast lap. That put him in Q one, and uh, putting him in Q one made it much more difficult for him to actually get through. 
Um, the, the lap times, because if you look at Fabio Quartararo's lap times, and even Maverick Vinales' lap times, are absolutely fantastic. But uh, Manuel Pacino, a uh, top Spanish journalist, said, um, I think on after the race on uh, on Sunday, Yamaha is uh, basically a PlayStation bike. It's great when you're just on, uh, on your own on the track. Um, what happened to Fabio Quartararo was uh, overheating the tire, uh, overheating the front tire. That's just inexperience. Um, on his own, he was fine. Uh, he spent all of his uh, uh, all of practice trying to ride on his own and and finding the speed, which is promising. It means that he's really really quick because they're finding the speed in a different part of the uh, of the circuits to compensate for the for the for the lack of speed on the on the straight. Um, but when he found he was riding in a group, the uh, lack of cool air on the uh, on the front tire meant that the tire pressure was going up, the tire temperature was going up, uh, and it took away all the feeling on the front and he was losing the front everywhere and couldn't uh, just couldn't be the competitive um vinales was just losing out in a in a in a drag race um same Shocking with first first lap from yeah he yeah but seventh, i think ended the first lap 12th yeah i think um uh, mugello is one of the circuits where you have the longest run to the first corner and it's the acceleration especially like in third and fourth gear where they're really really losing out so i think that uh, that cost them that might co- that might cost them in barcelona uh, barcelona as well yeah the the straight line is uphill as well which doesn't help um the thing as you said practice masks all of these problems because you can be on your own using all the track uh, going from a- out inside apex to outside apex and and maximizing corner speed which is really good uh, i mean mm, valentino rossi struggles in the track when he's been so good since 1996 uh, gives a good indication of the uh, competitiveness of, of that bike because of the top speed right now which is not enough and that leads to mistakes he had to take that he had to really take risks into the corner to compensate ended up having a tongue slapper um, and he doesn't like the feeling of the pads uh, with the with the safety system that brings them back together and then messed up in in um, in uh, at the end of fp3 for uh, for a place in, uh, in in q2 directly um, f- as for fabio quartao he also had a problem at the start which is very technical in MotoGP. It's really tricky. Uh, his, his manager, who is an agent, Eric May, who used to be super sport rider, says with the lack of, of acceleration, it's not only top speed. It's also, even if you do it perfectly, if you if you get off the line perfectly with the, with your clutch release, uh, you're going to be losing one line. That that means three riders because you're out dragged to, to uh, San Donato by the Ducatis, the Hondas, and even the Suzukis. But on top of that, after a few meters, uh, Fabio started to have a wheeling and he, he, had, he was at a slight angle. Sometimes at the start, even with the with the start mechanism, uh, you spin a little bit and it gets your bike uh, on an angle, and then he almost ran into his teammate. So he had to uh, release the gas for a fraction of time, and at that you don't see that on TV. But even on amateur racing, you lose a fraction, and then all of the people just fly past. And uh, Ducati with their launch control uh, and with the lightning reflexes of the whole grid. It ended up being nine places that he lost in the in the first lap, and then when you're there and your bike has not enough top speed, then it's really difficult to to fight back. He also acknowledged that the pressure uh, that they started with on the front tire was maybe a little bit too high. Normally, it just uh, takes 
you to get a bit of distance as compared to your opponents for for the tire to cool but not this time the the two lights he has on his dashboard that indicates that the tire pressure is too high st stayed on for the whole race so he was stuck and he said it was a, mainly in the changes of direction that he was losing the fronts and the lots of them in in you've got Luco Poggioseco then you've got uh, Casanova Savelli then uh, you you've got the Biondetti SS and like you're Scarperia. 150 sorry Scarperia yeah yes, also yeah. and Pelagio and so you're 150 k's per hour uh, from knee down to knee down and elbow down and in the middle you lose completely uh, it's like it's like uh, you're losing the grip and you don't know whether it's going to grip once you're on your side and so to be able to survive that the whole length of a race that tells you the 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 talents uh, he has because you could see Rossi he fell off uh, and uh, and he's quite experienced around this uh, this track. Yeah, Rossi was saying that um, his issues were stemming mainly from acceleration, just uh, losing out massive amounts coming out of the uh, coming out of the corners. Also, the high temperatures in the afternoon meant that uh, grip was kind of at a premium. Um, I think the track temperatures were forty nine degrees on Sunday, which yeah, is officially ex it, uh, it exceptionally was, high. Yeah, and over fifty on, uh, on some parts of the track, depending on on where it was. Uh, last year it was a little bit harsher; it was over it was over fifty. Uh, but I think also the changing temperatures, because when we got here, I mean it was. We froze here on our um, uh, on our first night here. Um, uh, the, the the temperatures sort of the, the day temperatures rose by about five degrees every day uh, the, the, that we were here. So um, Sunday was really was close to normal sort of Tuscan weather. Uh, Friday it was just really really cold, and so it was really difficult to actually find the balance with the tires with the uh, uh, with the with the different with the changing track temperatures. And one last aspect. Uh, for a bike that relies a lot on corner speed, Mugello was a lot bumpier than last year because there's a lot of car uh, testing and, and, and racing in the lower case. Not much in F1, but uh, it's, a, it's a track that is owned by Ferrari and there's a lot of cars uh, spinning laps there. And you could see on the images like uh, in Arabiata 1 and 2 or uh, on to Buccini the last turn uh it was bumpy on the inside uh, and uh some uh, lots of moto 3 riders got cut out with lighter bikes so it was uh, it was really really technical i think um Mugello is the most technical track in the whole calendar. That's why Valentino was so good at it throughout the years but it's uh it's some challenge for the riders. Yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, whether Ferrari willing to put the money into uh, actually resurface the track is uh, is a question. But I think also after afterwards, um, Valentino Rossi said um, he felt that uh, Yamaha sort of they would work during the winter and get everything ready, uh, but they would start the season and then not see any improvements through the through through the season. The start of the year was always good um, because they would. You know, basically, they'd have a sorted bike. They'd be able to compete right from the start. But other factories were turning up with bikes which weren't quite store sorted at the start of the season, and then they'd be sort of bringing developments through the year, and then sort of slowly pulling away from them. Uh, so once again, it was a bit of a cry to cry for help to Japan. Please help us send send parts, send horsepower. Yeah, that was something that Vinales was saying after his debrief yesterday as well. <clears throat> I have to be, have to say, Vinales did a commendable job to recover to sixth place because he spared Yamaha blushes. There was at least one bike in the top six, but still way below expectations and a track that Yamaha has performed so well at in uh, previous years as well. Um, bit of a difficult one and a real contrast to Suzuki. It's worth mentioning Alex Rins um, because he was a... Uh, 
he was one of the real star performers. Um, it's it's spectacular, just spectacular <laughs> to watch as well. Yeah, so, 13th on the grid, uh, sixth by the end of lap one, and then just putting on some outstanding moves on. Marquez, yeah, Davizioso, Miller. Miller. Yeah, Jack Miller was deeply entertaining about it. He says he could, uh, um, uh, Alex could just uh, put the bike wherever the F he wanted to. Um, and you can really see it. it, it it's an amazingly, uh, it, it, it's an amazingly agile machine. He he could pass wherever he wanted around the corner, uh, around the straights. He was just losing, uh, uh, losing around the, uh, losing down the straight. But you know, all of those changes of direction, he was passing in places where it's not supposed to be. Uh, uh, possible to pass shows the class of the lad also to come through from 13th on the grid to be about I think it was about 6th or 7th by the end of the first lap so right right with the um, right with the leading group right where he needs to be the Suzuki is really gentle on tyres it's their saving grace it costs them in qualifying because it's actually hard to get sort of maximum heat into the tyres to, to really push for a, for, for a quick lap um, but they, it, it pays back in the race because he was fast all the way to the end and he was a little bit unlucky to um, come away with just a fourth place. And just uh, to follow up what Miller said, he said there was one occasion when he was, I think he was turning into turn four, he said there was basically about a metre between him and the white line and he thought, okay, well, I've got this corner covered and Rins was still able to just put his Suzuki right on his inside, uh, much to his, uh, well, his amazement. Rins is a peculiar lad. Uh, first of all, um, just going back to what you said to Le Mans, uh, look on cool, cool, cool temperatures. Mir had five crashes in Le Mans, just because same problem that uh, Joanne in um, in Qatar, they struggle to put the temperature in the tires. So it's a real issue for them, something they have to work on. But not worrying this weekend. To talk to, talk to Alex Rins and you think uh, he doesn't belong to this paddock. He doesn't have much to say. He, he doesn't look impressive at all. He, he thinks like a lazy guy who's there just uh, maybe to do the coffee or something like that. He, uh, absolutely no star profile, not much to say. Sometimes it's even boring because you ask him interesting questions and then he has nothing to reply or he doesn't care or he doesn't want to. But first of all, he's very intelligent and he's damn talented. Like uh, He's a devil, like Marquez. When uh, Emilio Alzamora um, discovered him, he was uh, still living in Valde Algorfa, really close to Aragon. The Aragon racetrack wasn't even built at the time. Um, and he said to us, I think I found somebody that I was even more gifted than Marc Marquez. He takes that type of ability, Schwanzesque ability uh, to, to bring. I think no other guy in, in the paddock except Marquez should, could bring, or maybe Quartararo could bring the, the, the Suzuki that fast around uh, racetrack on talent alone. And you add really good intelligence to that in the good technical crew, and you end up with someone that is really threatening on different types of tracks, like Austin and Mugello. He's uh, an interesting proposition for uh, even for a championship, um, despite the fact that he, he looks uh, anonymous. Yeah, he was odd in his debrief after after the race. It, it was like he, we were saying. So you know, does this mean fourth, losing more points to Mark? Does this mean the championship is is over? Oh no, 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 no! It's fine. I'm sure I'll be. Uh, I'm sure I'll be in at the end. The good tracks are coming anyway. If I don't win it this year, I win it next year. So it was. Uh, it was. It was so strange. Remember, in Moto Two, he was he was competing for the title. Uh, he lost it in the in the last straight, and he was pulling a wheelie just to say hello to the spectators. And we were like, "What the hell is he doing?" 
And it's and in Moto3, it's the same. He, he got mugged at the last race by Maverick Vinales for the title. He didn't mind as, as well. You think, he, he, is he living on the moon the rest of the time? Uh, uh, because uh, some people would have been eating their hat and crying in despair and rolling themselves in... in but it's so cool that for him, it doesn't matter. Uh, in a way, this cool attitude and, and this immunity to pressure is a great asset because I'm sure he... Uh, He sleeps well, whatever the uh, the stakes are, and it's great. I'm I'm actually jealous uh, <laughs> because how can you be so cool in such a pressure cooker environment? Uh, Alex Rins is a he reminds me of Jimi Hendrix. He replaced the guitar with a J6RR, but he's that good. And uh, for and you don't have to believe what he says when he uh, when he thinks about his own he tells about his own performances because he's downgrading them. As, as, he's another genius. From what I saw of Rins yesterday, I can tell you that it was the exact same mood, the exact same delivery as what I saw Rins uh, say after Le Mans. And Le Mans was an unmitigated disaster. And it was just like, well, you know, yeah, we were crap here last year, crap again this year. Good tracks are coming up. We should be all right. So Rins, yeah, certainly an interesting character. And, uh, well, yep, another fine performance from him. Okay, that's it for the second part of the show. We'll be right back in a minute with part three. Uh, so, welcome back to the third part, the final part of our show. There were some quite substantial uh, losers from this weekend. Some very poor performances indeed. Uh, we have a Frenchman in our midst, so it would only be right to hand to you, Mr. Bojard. Johan Zarko, 17th, 41 seconds back of the race winner. Looks as though... Sebastian, the uh, the PR person for KTM, was going to have to confiscate his shoelaces after several sessions. Certainly on Friday and Saturday, it looked as though Zarko was uh, uh, in danger of uh, a bit of self-harm. He was that depressed looking, that sad. Um, what's happening? Um, I think Joan doesn't even know himself. It's like um, he, he did an improvement as compared to Le Mans because he wasn't uh, insulting anyone or crying out loud uh, on the debriefs, which is a good thing, because for the image of KTM, it's disastrous. But it shows his expectation and where he is now. He said with quite a lot of humor, uh, well, it's a first. It's the first time I finished last, and it's a new experience towards the quest of the title, who seems to be quite uh, far away indeed. But he says, well... Uh, we tried to modify the chassis for something like six months. The settings, I mean, uh, it doesn't work. So I went back to the, the chassis um, preference of Paul Espargaro and tried to adapt. Um, it doesn't seem to work for now, but we've seen some improvements in some areas. So it's um, it's interesting. Basically, what Johan tries to do is try to modify his, ri his riding style instead of uh, arriving with a lot of speed into the corner, releasing the brakes and get in and, and uh, profit from the, the high corner speed of the Yamaha he was riding before. He's trying to the force the bike inside of the brakes very aggressively, uh, square off the corner, and then getting to the power early with a lot of leaning angle, which is a high-risk technique, but this is the technique that Paul Espargaro favors, and this is what earned him reasonably good performance on the KTM recently. So he's trying that, and he's monitored in this effort by Jean-Michel Bale, who's trackside looking, uh, even videoing. I, I saw him uh, around the racetrack, and uh, he said, uh, training with the supermoto, uh, this is an efficient technique because he placed cone around the track and, and uh, 
change my writing, my usual writing technique because what Jean-Michel is saying is that he was uh, taught by Laurent Felon, his ex-manager, to work on a very, very fine line, a very, very narrow line of, of writing. Uh, only one technique and not a very versatile technique, which explains sometimes that he had some offs even with the M1 uh, on mid-season on both bo both seasons. So it's interesting, but it's a, it's a long work. And during the, the race at Mugello, he, he tried to opt for the soft tire and see how it went. It was not too bad at the beginning of the race to the middle of the race, but at the end, the bike was too physical and the rear tire was destroyed. So that's why he went backwards. But to me, Johan has no other options as trying and change. It's uh, because uh, he's got no option for next year. He's got a two-year contract. And um, and KTM won't change overnight, so he has to turn into a development rider, Piero style, change his riding style, and see how it goes. It's uh, it's long, it's hard, but he has no choice. Yeah, I mean, you can see the the style which the um, which the bike needs. Um, it just needs to be bullied around the track, really, which is totally against Sarko's uh, uh, against Sarko's natural style. Polis Bargaro loves the bike because that's the, the way that he wants to ride. But I think, you know, Sarko's going to come out of this, if he comes out of this, he's going to come out of this a much, much better rider, a much more complete rider because he's going to be able to uh, adapt better, really. The change in Spargo because of course he spent I think four seasons on the M1 and he was always too aggressive. He could never quite uh, manage that super smooth, uh, finite style that's needed to make that bike go fast. Yeah, but um, you have to you have to consider that you have to be versatile at top level. Marc Marquez is showing it week in week, in, week out, changing his race styles, changing the settings, and it's it's part of the game if you want to be a top rider. Maybe Joan was a bit deceived by all this because uh, for 10 years he's been riding in one way and somehow with all the bikes he had one two five two strokes um then um he didn't go to moto three but uh, several types of different chassis in in uh, in moto two and then on the m1 it worked but uh, jean-michel bail said in motocross and supercross alone with the same type of bike we don't run in the same suspension settings so you have to adapt from motocross to road racing i had to adapt much more than what joan had to say this is this is some it is a good weapon to have in your package and and he has no choice so he's gonna have to do it so all in all it for me it's not that bad a process you look also at the videos of how many years it took for, uh, with the ducati to become competitive it's four seasons so maybe we're just being a little bit too eager right now and ktm management is putting maybe a little bit too much too much pressure and maybe joan is also putting too much pressure on himself what an interesting step is going to be danny pedroza coming and and starting to ride the bike uh in in earnest in Brno because he had a, a secret mugello test just to see if the collarbone was holding and but he wasn't pushing too much Danny Pedrosa is is a rider that needs the bike to help him at its utmost uh, to uh, to perform because he's so small and light, and he's got more or less the same types of comments and demands than Joan. So maybe he's going to also help the, the the development of the RC16 to be a little bit more suitable to the way Joan's uh, usually rides his bike. So let's wait and see for at least a couple of more months. Another big loser from the weekend, Jorge Lorenzo. Mugello has been one of his best tracks, just like Jerez, in, re in his career. Um, some of his best ever rides have come at Mugello. 
yet there he was, 13th, 20 seconds back of the race winner. Yeah, and passed by Alicia Spargaro on the um, uh, on the on the Aprilia. And Juan Mir on the Suzuki. Yeah, the rookie on the Suzuki, yeah. Uh, he's just struggling to get comfortable on the bike and trying to figure it out. Um, there was a change of plan. He uh, is currently on a plane to Japan. Um, he's going to sit in HRC's, uh, you know, directly in, in HRC with the engineers um, uh, to try and figure out what he needs to to find the right riding position on the, uh, on the bike. He's very uh, particular about his riding style. He needs a lot of uh, sort of help to be put in the right position. Um, he's also talking about fairing. They're not going to get a new fairing. He needs a new fairing so that he can rest his knees against it to give himself some support, um, which is you know a bit odd, but that's what he needs. Um, it, the once it works, we saw with the Ducati. Once it works, they bought you know an update to the tank. I think at Jerez, and he did quite well. Um, they bought another uh, the, the final version of the update that he wanted for Mugello, and he won a race, won the next race, all the rest of it. And you can see he pointed out that you know it's interesting to see that Ducati have gone much further in this same direction um, uh, even after he left. Because if you if you go to the different Ducati garages, or well, let's say the factory and the and the Pramac uh, garages. Every single rider has a different tank. They all have a different tank. They have different shape around their legs. Um, they have different levels of support. Jack Miller's got these almost like wings on the side of his tank, where uh, which he hooks uh, uh, hooks his bike over, which helps him. Um, uh, actually sort of manoeuvre the bike uh, Dovi has much less uh, support Petrucci's halfway through uh, sort of halfway in between Bagnaia is a little bit similar so th- th- it, it's really I think they've uh, again what Ducati have done so well is work on the details uh, of the bike all these little uh, looking for just tiny uh, uh, tiny improvements all the time and now I think HRC are following the same sort of path with Lorenzo to see if they can find uh, find something however They've just spent a lot of money to take him over to Japan, um, and uh, they will—they'll go through presumably all sorts of uh, you know uh, prototyping to uh, try and get him in the position that he wants. And if you if they do that, give him what he wants, and he's still not uh, fast, then we come into a slightly different situation. Yeah, because we've now had six races where we've basically saw no progress whatsoever. I don't think there was ever a six-race spell in his Ducati career when it was as bad as this. There was, sure, some shocking races, but it was never six races of very poor results and no progress whatsoever. And it was interesting to watch him tell us on Saturday. It was like uh, almost a final resort. It was like, hey, you know, sure Marquez can win in this bike, that's fine, but Honda hired me to make sure there was two riders on the podium every weekend. And unless they listen to me and some of the input that I give, I've done this with Yamaha, I've done this with Ducati. He actually mentioned the, uh, the fuel tanks. He said that basically what they did for him last year is now being incorporated into Petrucci's bike design and Miller's bike design. He said, I can, I can build winning bikes and what they need to do is listen to me so that myself, Carl Crutchlow, even Takanakagami in uh, future rounds can, um, can be up there fighting with Mark. Um, Tom, what do you make of it? There's a cultural problem below this. Uh, Soishiro Honda was not much of a cool guy at all and it was he established his his brand being Honda Motor Corporation uh typically japanese um how do you say spirit is that 
the company is one and the individual is part of the company. It's like an, an ant's uh, <laughs> house, let's say. I don't know how you say that in English. Uh, yeah, an ant's nest. No individual shall be too important in that company. Uh, Jeremy McGrath left HRC because of this. Uh, Valentino Rossi also because of this. Rider doesn't need to be too important. So they don't. Uh, basically, Honda produces the best bike in the world, and the rider has to adapt. They made an exception. Uh, Marquez has no such problem because it's so adaptable. But Jorge's needs are quite peculiar. And and in Japan, there was a really good documentary a couple of years ago about that because even even the way to the the cultural difference are, are so big that when a Japanese engineer listens to you and not, it doesn't mean that he's understood what you uh, that that he agrees with with what you says. He just nods because he he, he acknowledges that he is hearing you and and uh, understanding you. That's it. So that's why Jorge is going to Japan. I'm sometimes not understanding you in the case of that documentary. Yeah, but still, but yeah. but still nodding because they are extremely polite as well. So uh, even if uh, Alberto Pucci is trying to uh, speed up the reaction process and 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 better the communication, it's still hard for Honda to trust a gaijin. It's the the generic word for a foreigner and and uh, access to his desires. Also. Um, Lorenzo is a very peculiar rider uh, in the sense that he's the most uh, one of the most talented, but also one of the most the most unfit rider on the grid, and uh, that places quite a lot of stress on his forearms. Um, a situation that is even um, worse because of his scaphoid injury. He cannot even train if even if he wanted to. He cannot even train properly his upper body, and you can you have to think of. Every time you go to a serious breakpoint in MotoGP, you have if you weigh 60 kilos, you're gonna have to withstand 100 kilos in the handlebars. It's really really physical, and I can tell because of, up until even 11 years ago, we had five years uh, five laps in Valencia on the, all the m different prototypes, and uh, driving 15 seconds of the pace, something like that. After five laps, we were exhausted because we were not used to this uh, force, uh, this G-force on braking. If you have to repeat that during a race, if you're not properly prepared like Lo uh, Lorenzo is, and then it, it, it's, it becomes impossible to extract the best of the bike at, uh, for the last third of the race. Hence the, the knee pads, which is a quite a clever solution, the grippy tank, like a, a lot of motocrossers do, and I think time is going to help him finally heal uh, his scaphoid and then allow him to train more, and that could make a difference. Yeah, also worth pointing out that the 2019 Honda is a lot faster than the 2018 uh, bike, but that's come at a cost. We saw uh, Cal Crutchlow's having it's struggling a lot more on this bike than um, on last year's bike. Uh, Takanakagami had a fantastic race at Mugello, uh, beating Crutchlow, I think, for the first time ever. Um, but also, I mean, you know, you see Taka is happier, much, much happier, much uh, more uh, relaxed and much faster on this bike. Um, Crutchlow is much less happy and is struggling a lot more. Yeah, do point out that uh, Taka has got the 18th chassis. That's why he's happy, and 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 the all the other ones have got the 19th chassis, and uh, that, which is a lot trickier. But once again, Marc Marquez is is hiding the problems because he compensates all the time. He's able. Our good friend Peter Baum was there, uh, trackside watching, and he says he can like he can have three different types of alerts in the way going into a corner, and he's like a cat. Uh, compensating in a way that he is not losing time. I don't remember two years, two or three years ago, uh, Mark had a massive 
front-end slide uh, entering right sack, which is now Danny Pedroza corner. He was in the middle of a battle, and somehow at Reyes, and somehow on the acceleration, he w he was still glued to the opponent uh, that he was uh, following. I don't remember who it was, but he's able to manage things that are normally impossible for other riders to manage because he's got his cat-like reflexes and his riding technique. Yeah, I think that save on was it at uh, Le Mans the save on actually on the curbs. <laughs> that's, yeah, it, yeah. yeah, that's that's insane. That, I mean, that shows you that yeah, it's very much Marquez, uh, which is which is doing um, which is saving Honda. Uh, and if Loren, if HRC prepared to listen to Honda, then I think that's uh, oh sorry, if Honda are prepared to listen to Lorenzo. Uh, then yeah, I think uh, I think they it, the bike could really be better and start to start to see uh, start to see some improvement. But Lorenzo will have to put his finger out. Okay, right. So time is uh, ticking on here. We're going to quickly run through our winners and losers from the weekend. Uh, basically, uh, late part of the show where we have to pick one big winner from the weekend. Give a short description why, and then we'll go on to the losers. Now, Tom, you are our special guest uh, on this week's episode. Who was your big winner from the race weekend, the Italian for Grand Prix? For me, it's not a rider, it's a brand. It's Ducati with the uh, Dovi and Petrox because uh, they achieved... Uh, it was a really, really risky tactics, but they got the best out of it. I'm, I'm really eager to see how it's going to pan out for the next rounds. Okay, interesting choice. Uh, David? Uh, for me, I think Alex Rins because he showed that on a... Uh, starting from 13th, on a bike which was uh, clearly uh, underpowered on the straight, he still managed to give the much more powerful Ducatis and, and Hondas a really, really tough time. And he was, um, it, honestly, he deserved a podium, um, but um, he, he, he just couldn't just couldn't make it. Okay. Uh, and I will go for, I think, Takenakagami. We mentioned him briefly there, fifth place, uh, six seconds back off the race winner at Mugello. As you said, Tom, one of the most, if not the most, technical track on the calendar. Um, on last year's bike, last year, Honda really didn't have a great time at Mugello whenever it got very hot on the Sunday. And uh, they all had pretty bad issues with their front tyre. For Nakagami, in those conditions, with the year-old bike, to be fighting, uh, well, just behind. He was part of the leading grip for a little bit, but just to be behind that, I think, uh, really marks him out as... Uh, as well, a stellar talent, and I have to say, I never, even through last year, I never thought Nakagami would be capable of such results in MotoGP, somewhere like Mugello in particular. Just one thing that helped uh, Naka, I completely agree with what you say, but tires have been doing a massive improvement, and I think it could have sorted a few issues that the Honda had because they are much more stable, and the new chemicals that have been developing uh, uh, ensure them uh, a lot of a safer ride. You see Marquez crashing a lot less. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. Uh, and moving on to our losers from the weekend. Valentino Rossi, no doubt. I mean, at Mugello, imagine it must be an excruciating pain to be in front of a sea of yellow and performing like this for a guy who's been dominating the, the show for so long. He had two really bad years at Mugello, 2010, when he crashed and broke his leg. Biondetti 1 and 2 because he let the tire cool too much. Barbera was uh, on his tail and he didn't want him to show in the wheel ended up in hospital, said he developed a really interesting uh, relationship with Morphine after that, so always putting a, an interesting twist uh, for bad stuff. And also 2013 when he collided uh, at, I think it was Luco or Poggio Seco with Bautista, 
uh, at the start of the race. Bautista had uh, to leave the, the racetrack on the boot of a car, not to be slaughtered by the mass. <laughs> but this year's, I mean, nowhere during the tests, and uh, during uh, practice, and 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 falling off in a race after being them so far. For, for Valentino Rossi, I can't think of a worse torture. Yeah, I mean, I asked uh, um, uh, Rossi uh, after the... Uh, um uh, in his debrief after the race, Tammy Grali asked me, sent me the question. I asked, uh, sort of, what was worse, this one, uh, or when he blew up in 2016? And he said, yeah, 2016, yeah, that was um, more desperate. That was, yeah, more desperate, but but at least it was optimistic because you knew you, you knew you had the speed. Here, this is just despair. This is deeply pessimistic because we're in a bad situation and there's no real sign of improvement. So for me, my big winner is not Rossi as such, but Yam. Oh, sorry, my big loser. <laughs> Get you I'm, another I'm, coffee. Yeah, well, that's right. Yeah, that's that's what happens after a weird race weekend and no sleep. My big loser is Yamaha, uh, not just Rossi, but all of them, because uh, the bike, honestly, the bike is really, it, it's in the base of it, it's really good, but it's just missing far too much acceleration for it to be uh, competitive. And, you know, they're going to suffer through another year where they're going to get enough podiums to miss out on uh, concession points, but, um, uh, but yeah, not, not, be, not be able to develop and really be competitive, uh, you know, challenge for wins, challenge for, for, for the championships. They might get a win, they might get one, maybe two wins, but they're not going to be challenging for the championship. Yep, couldn't agree more. And because, well, both of your choices have been uh, Yamaha-related, I'm going to have to go uh, a little bit left field and say uh, Aprilia, I think, is uh, the big loser. Um, some reasons for that, uh, namely that, uh, well, the KTM now is uh, definitely a better bike than the RSGP. Um, Alicia Spargaro has been consistently saying this year that he has taken the bike to its absolute limits and he can't do any more. Um, he was slightly unimpressed to put it mildly, that KTM brought quite a lot of things, quite a lot of updates to the Hareth test, then had an extra day of testing after uh, the race at Hareth, and look what that, look what that got them in uh, Le Mans. Uh, Prilly basically have had barely any updates from the start of this year. I think uh, Espargaro had a new fairing, but that's not going to revolutionize the motorcycle. Um, and uh, yeah, he just seems a bit nonplussed by the lack of development coming his way. He says that Everything, the structure of the of the company now with uh, Massimo Rivola has uh, definitely been an improvement. The fact that they've got a fully functioning test team with uh, Bradley Smith there. Um, he's been impressed with uh, Smith's diligence and dedication to that role. But it's like, come on, we've been complaining about this acceleration issue for three years now and I'm still losing an incredible amount on corner exit there's just no chance and he said he was running with um, with Lorenzo during the race and he's stuck behind him countless laps uh, said Lorenzo was riding poorly he could see that Lorenzo had no confidence whatsoever wasn't able to run his fast flowing lines through the corner he was almost trying to park it in the middle uh, which is just no way to go fast through the, the fast changes of direction at Mugello and he said um, because of Lorenzo's acceleration um, ability or the Honda's acceleration ability uh, there was no way past so a pretty frustrating 11th place for him also there was uh, a few comments from Andrea Iannone after the race at uh, Le Mans where he said that uh, well what one of the issues is the fact that Nespargaro 
can't really develop the bike. He is overriding it and basically masking the flaws. Uh, hasn't been able to identify what really needs to be done. Um, yeah, and there's a war of words between. I mean, you know, the, the atmosphere. Andrea Iannone has joined the team, and since then the atmosphere has gone downhill. I don't think it's ever happened before, except to all the other teams he's raced for. But um, uh, th- there is a real. Th- th- there's a huge problem at uh, at Aprilia um, again. I, th- there seem to be signs of progress, but I really think they're in they're they're in deep trouble for <laughs> certainly this year, and they'll have to hope to be able to um, f- find something next year. Yeah, and it's one thing having uh, inexperienced guy like Sam Lowe's as a teammate and coming in and struggling to score points, Reading as well because he has the height disadvantage. Um, was in a similar position to Ian only last year. We thought, well, you know, uh, maybe Reading's just not cut out for MotoGP, but Ian only is a Grand Prix winner, MotoGP race winner, uh, podium finisher as recently as last year, and he is struggling to get points 15th at his home Grand Prix, usually goes very well at Mugello. So I think, yeah, Prilia uh, at their home race had a pretty uh, weekend to forget. Absolutely. Okay, fantastic. So uh, we all have airports to be uh, going to, to traveling towards. Uh, so uh, we're going to bring this show to an end. Uh, as ever, I'd like to thank my guests for today, especially Mr. Thomas Bojard, Moto Journal. Uh, fantastic to have you on the show again, Mr. Mr. Bojard. It's a pleasure. Anytime. And uh, also to you, Mr. David Emmett of uh, motormatters.com. Yes, uh, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. I get the pleasure of your company on our drive up to uh, uh, Bologna for, uh, in a little while. Yeah, lucky you. And uh, well, thank you as well to you, listener, listening back at home. Uh, always appreciated uh, when you tune in to the show. Um, now is a good time to remind you that we are... Uh, journalists traveling on the road we have set up a patreon page to help us with uh, with our efforts uh, you can find us and perhaps even uh, put a little money into the piggy bank that's uh, about three dollars a month i think you can uh, donate uh, to uh, patreon that's uh, patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast uh, you should follow us on our social media channels as well twitter at paddock pass pod you can follow us on facebook facebook.com forward slash paddock pass podcast and on the Apple podcast device. If you could leave us a review, that helps other viewers or listeners uh, find our show. Thanks very much. We'll be back again soon with the World Superbike show from Hereth, I think is coming up. Steve and Gordon Ritchie, I'm sure, will be back with uh, their take from the World Superbike paddock. And then we'll be coming back at you again from Catalonia. So, speak to you soon.